Hello, Coastway Church. Good to see you in the room. Our friends, our family who are joining us online, hello and welcome to you. If you are new, here's what we want you to know. Our vision as a church is to multiply the gospel. We think it starts here in the Grand Strand, so we want to see it multiply through the Grand Strand, and then we want to see it multiply throughout the entire world. We are a local church with a global heart committed to the Great Commission. So what does this mean? This means that we know that God is doing more than just what we see in, in front of our nose. This means that God is doing something bigger, something better than just what's happening here in Myrtle Beach. And as a church, we partner with God to seek Jesus, bring renewal, not just here and near, but also in faraway places on our planet. And we had the privilege this past fall of partnering with what God is doing in uh, Santo Domingo, the uh, Dominican Republic, with Pastor Manuel and his wife, Jenna Sanchez. They have moved for the sake of mission from Atlanta, Georgia, to plant Grace City Church in the capital city of the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo. And we are thrilled and thankful to have been able to partner with Pastor Manuel and Grace City Church to fuel them, to fund them, and to help them move forward. We had the opportunity, a brand new church just getting started for us, to give $5,000 to help them launch today to launch healthy, to launch ready. And so we are so excited about what God is doing, not just here, but also in the Dominican Republic. And our desire to multiply the gospel means that we're going to multiply churches. We're going to multiply leaders. We're going to multiply disciples. And it's not just here with what we see in Myrtle Beach. So uh, let's pray for Grace City Church. They're getting ready to gather today for the first time publicly. They've planted a lot of seeds. They've been praying bold prayers. And we just want to Partner with God by praying right now for him to move in power through Grace City Church. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled that you use us. You don't need us, but you want us. You don't have to have us by your, by your side. I think it's kind of like you know, the kid who joins dad in the workshop or, or, or the daughter who, who, who joins mom with something that she's doing. It's like we could, we could do that just fine, but we want to in, you want to involve your kids. You want to involve your kids in what you're doing and teach us and show us what it looks like to live out of your character and your heart. And so, God, we are privileged to be able to be active participate, participants in your global purposes through Grace City Church. Lord, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill Pastor Manuel as he preaches your word. I pray that he would preach with authority, with clarity, with comfort, and also uh, in ways that uh, need to confront the cultural lies. God, I pray for Great City Church to be a city on a hill, a bright light shining beauty into darkness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's where we're at, whether it's on your app or in your lap. Go ahead, open your Bibles, and join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible on your app or in your lap, that's okay. We thought of you. The scriptures are going to be on the screens we have a beautiful passage of Scripture in front of us today. I am so eager to walk through this passage. We're going to go into chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we're going to be in the verse 12 verses. There's going to be something here today for every single one of us. And here's what Peter is about to do. He is about to be really clear about this deep desire that Jesus has for everyone, everywhere, in every church. Man, woman, or child, this is for all of us. And that deep desire is simply this. Grow up. Grow up. Turn to your neighbor and say, grow up. 
All right, now we're preaching. Now we are preaching today. It's like I've been waiting to say that for a while on the car ride over here. Man, thank, thank you, Pastor. But what we are called to do is we're called to grow up. I, I want you to just think back to um, I, just how we instinctively understand none of us are everything that we should be, right? We, we all have more things to learn, more ways that we could grow. But here's what's, here's what's sad is that we get to a place in life to where we're so jaded and we're so educated that we have the illusion of arrival. And so it's as if we say, man, I've, I've grown as, 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 as big or as mature as I'm going to be. I've given as much as I'm possibly going to give, and I'm, I'm done with that. I'm, I'm not going to do anything about the knowledge that I need to move forward. I need to grow up, and that there needs to be some things in my life that, that change. And it's sad because this is the way the city of man thinks. This is, but this is not the way the, the city of God thinks. You see, the, one of the uh, uh, delusional symptoms of sin that is often untraced is the illusion of arrival. I've gone as far as I'm going to go. I've learned as much as I'm going to learn. And, you know, what's, whatever I've accumulated over the years, whether good or bad, that's just me. Deal with it. That's not the way the city of God thinks. The city of God thinks progress. The, the city of God thinks maturity. The city of God thinks grow up. And I just want to take you back to, um, like, when you were a child, or if you are a child, just think about uh, what is it that you wanted to be or you want to be when you grow up? And it's charming to have a child answer this question. Because, uh, like, what was your answer when your parents or the people on the playground, they would ask you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? Or better yet, what were your answers? Children are very ambitious. If you want to get around a creative visionary, just get around a child. And it's, it's, it's charming because, like, kids don't really have this idea or this concept of limits. And so I asked Eleanor, our four-year-old daughter, I said, hey, sweetie, what do you want to be when you grow up? Very ambitious. She said, I want to be a doctor. Amen. Uh, I want to be a firefighter. That's cool. I want to be a ballerina instructor. Great. <laughs> and I want to be a cowgirl. I'm like, this girl is going to be very busy. I thought back to when I was a child, like if you had asked me, like some days, I was thinking about just all the influences. Some days I would say, I want to be a cowboy. Not a Dallas cowboy, but a, a real cowboy. Okay, that's, that's a critical <laughs> clarification, all right? Uh, and so I want to be a cowboy. Other days I would say, I want to be Luke Skywalker. Other days I would say, I want to be Darth Vader. Confused kid, I know, right? Uh, and, or I would say, I want to be a professional basketball player. There was this one moment, I'll never forget this. My dad, he, we were walking together and he said, Jeremy, don't be surprised if you're a pastor one day. I was about 11 years old. I laughed, I smarted off, I said something stupid, joke's on me. Here we are. <laughs> And it's, it's amazing uh, just when you go back and you think about, like, what, what was in your heart when you were a child? Well, the biblical vision for growing up is never get past that recognition that you could become something more than you currently are with grace and grit and the power of the Holy Spirit. The biblical vision for growing up is bigger than our vocation. It's bigger than what we do. It's bigger than our education. It's, it's bigger than what we know. It's about, think about this, it's about our location, it's about our, our location. Where do I locate hope, help, meaning, identity? And the biblical vision for growing up is that you locate your hope, your help, your meaning, your purpose, your identity fully and finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a mature uh, person according to the biblical vision. From the beginning and throughout the Bible, the call of every man, woman, and child is to be pressed and to be pruned into the likeness of Christ. And let's get real, it's often painful. 
Pruning does not feel great. Pressing does not feel good. But this is Peter's priority. To understand everything he's about to say in these verses, you have to understand that his priority is to, you, you must functionally become like Jesus. That's success. That's maturity. That's progress. That's growing up. And so Peter is about to offer us six ways we can grow up and lead lives that look more and more like Jesus. Six ways that we can lead lives that image, that reflect the person and work of Jesus. And the whole idea around this, and it's, it's very simple, is we are called up to grow up. We are called up to grow up. So let's see what this is about. Verse 1, Peter says to the scattered, persecuted churches all over the world, so put away, if you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline put away, that's the action that we're taking, put away, uh, I think we might have a cowboy loose in the room, that's awesome, <laughs> incredible, uh, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So the first way that we grow up, here it is, to grow up, renounce childish ways. Some of us think that if we get zapped by the Holy Spirit enough times, or if we grow old enough to go to Enterprise and rent a car, that all our accumulated childish ways will just disappear. And Peter's saying, hey, listen, it's not that simple. The word put away pictures a soiled, useless garment, one that is no longer, here's a way to think about it, fashionable or functional. So here basically is what Peter is, is saying is don't, don't take that to goodwill. Don't try to work your tide to go magic. Uh, don't pass this garment down to baby Sebastian, but you throw it away. It goes in the trash heap. When my wife and I, when we were first married, this was over 10 years ago, I had a pair of jean shorts. I did, confession. I, I had a pair of jean shorts. And I thought, man, I thought they looked real nice. I really did. So I wore these, they're Ralph Lauren jean shorts. I wore these all the time. Do you know what we call these? Jorts. Okay. I had a pair of jorts. That, okay. And so Victoria was, was, was kindly and consistently letting me know, hey, Jeremy, those don't look good. <laughs> those, real, those really don't look good. They're, they're not fashionable. And I know that you're, you're really into them. And so we had spaghetti for dinner one night. A great spaghetti dinner. It was awesome. And so I go over after dinner and I go over to the trash can and I'm just like shocked. My, my jorts are in the trash can and spaghetti sauce has been spilled all over them. And I'm like, sweetie, what happened? She just mischievously grinned and continued doing what she was doing. And so here's the bigger point in all of this. If you want to grow up, uh, some of the wives in the room are just like, I just got inspired. Uh, that, that's going to happen when we go home. It's like, don't ask questions. If you want to grow up into a reasonable, relatable, responsible person, if you want to live according to the new birth, the living hope of chapter 1, then childish ways must go. Peter mentions five characteristics of childishness. First is malice. What is malice? Malice is a desire to harm or hurt another person, and it begins in the heart. So let me ask you this question. Is there someone in your heart, and you're probably already thinking about them, who you would like to see fail or suffer? And so Peter is saying that's a childish way to operate. That's the way the city of man thinks. Then there's deceit. Deceit is consciously acting in an insincere way. It's, it's the idea of a fish hook. It's the idea of like a trap that's set for an animal. And all that's going on with deceit is 
I'm, I'm either uh, exaggerating, I'm tricking, or I'm manipulating to try to get my way. Let me just ask you this. Is this going on in your life in any way, shape, or form? Next, hypocrisy. That's the, the, big, the big accusation against the church. Man, I don't want to go and be in a room full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm just, wanna, I'm just here to tell you, if you let a hypocrite stand between you and God, guess who's closer to God? We're all hypocrites. None of us are everything that we should be. But the idea of hypocrisy right here is you're wearing a mask. You are purposefully performing or pretending to be someone who you are not actually. And so the question to ask is, are you pretending to be someone or something you're not? Peter says, that's childish. Put it away. Then there's envy. This is to resent another person's prosperity. And what does it lead to? It leads to grudges and it leads to bitterness. So you're just like, man, you know, how does she look so good all the time? How are they all, that, that married couple, how are they always so fit? How do they get their kids to eat their greens and mind their manners? And you're just like, man, I hope that they, I hope they fail or I hope, you know, I hope something bad happens to them. Let me ask you this. Is there someone somewhere who has something you envy? Peter says, you got to put that away. That's, that's not the way it works in the city of God. It's unfit for the children of God. Next is slander. So slander, uh, this is probably one of the most subtle ways that we tear one another down. In cancel culture, it's how we cancel people without actually dealing with the real issue. Here's what, here's, here's what uh, slander is. It's you assume the worst and you attack with words. I assume the worst and I attack with words. And here's what makes it so sinister. The person's usually not in the room when it happens. So it's the defamation of character. It's, back, it's backbiting. It's, it's destroying. And so let me ask you this. Are you quick to tear down others when they're not around? Particularly when they disappoint you or they, they, they give you some bad vibe or you're assuming the worst, you're attacking with words. Peter is saying that if this is how you relate, primarily you haven't made it past the childish stage of life in his kingdom. Could you be a little like this? Let's clear, let's clear the air. Could this be you even just a little bit? Spiritually, are you the kind of person who is spiritually hot one day but cold the next? Do you spend some time with a godly friend or hear a sermon like today and things are spiritually hot in you but then it all fades? It's like a firework. One minute it's just like this light show in the sky. Next thing you know it's just like smoke falling down. It's over just as soon as it started. In one moment are you confident in your faith and the next are you filled with doubts? One minute, are you praying fervently? The next, unsure if any of this is true. If so, Peter says you have some growing up to do. And if we're being honest, don't we all? Aren't we all childish? Aren't we all immature? C.S. Lewis, I love how he put this. He says, you will never know how bad you are until you actually become a Christian. Because up to that point, all, all that you're doing is uh, you're assuming like I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But then you come to Christ and you're called up to renounce sin and you see what a powerful grip these ways of relating have on you. And so, hey, listen, if you're new to the faith, this much is expected. Childish ways. <laughs> it's a part of it. We, it is expected as a new believer, as new, new with God as father, church as family, there's going to be malice. There's going to be envy. There's going to be deceit. There's going to be hypocrisy. There's going to be slander. It takes time to rehab that's what the Bible calls discipleship. It's rehabbing from childish ways into the way of Jesus. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are undergoing a spiritual detox from the ways of the city of man, and it's called discipleship. 
But here's the thing, and, and this is something I, I got I to call out and call up, and we all need to recognize that if you've been a Christian for 20 years, and all of these, these are your still, your default tactics, please don't go around saying that you're a 20-year-old Christian. The fact is, it's, it's more likely that you've been a one-year-old Christian 20 times. And it's time to grow up. It's time to own up. It's time to take responsibility for the, the ugly <laughs> that is inside of, of all of us, starting with myself. Nobody truly wants the alternative. <laughs> Nobody wants the alternative of growing up. It's a life given to the childish ways of verse 1. It's an ungrateful, unreasonable, unpleasant person. And Peter's appeal is, simp is simple. Please don't do this to yourself. Please don't do this to the people who are closest to you. Please don't do this to your spouse. Don't do this to your kids. Don't do this to your neighbors. Don't do this to your boss. Give them the gift of a life growing into the beauty of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that can be translated of the word, that by it you may grow up, there it is, circle that, highlight that, underline that, remember that, grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Number two, to grow up, receive the nutrients of God's word. So the analogy is vivid and it's practical. It's a nursing baby. So how do babies grow? They grow by drinking milk, lots of it, multiple times a day, not one bottle on Sunday, and then you wait a week and get another bottle the next Sunday. No, it's all day, every day, multiple <laughs> times. And Peter is saying that's what we're all supposed to be doing with the Word. We're supposed to long for the Word as if we were nursing infants who depend on it for life. I mean, just imagine uh, if a mother only fed her baby one day a week. Well, what happened to that baby? It would be terrible. It would be sad. It would be malnourished. There would be growth defects. Or imagine how, just the insanity of, of a mother trying to talk the baby out of milk. Just like, hey, cute little baby, there's this thing called sushi. And it's, it's so good. You don't want this milk. There's the, there's the fatty meats of barbecue. There's, there's, oh, carbs. Hey, little baby, I know you like that milk, but, you know, there's, there's some better stuff out there. The baby has this primal instinct regardless. Give me milk. That's what I need. All the nutrients that I need for life and sustaining is in milk. And it's like, I know there are great podcasts. I know there's great books. I know there's great life hacks. I know there's great TED Talks. I know there's a, a thousand celebrity pastors who you can stream online in your jammies who will never call you out and never call you up and never come and see you when times are going bad. Well, man, that would, that would be... That would be one way to go about it. But no, the, the groan of the growing Christian is give me the pure milk of the word more than any of that stuff. That's what I need. I, I love this. Christianity Today released an article this week that showed how nine out of 10 evangelical Christians prefer longer sermons full of substance. And at Coastway Church, we say, amen. Amen. And of all people, Younger evangelicals under the age of 40 are twice as likely to push for these reforms. 
It's like, I, I, I don't want you just to tell me all of these, these uh, uh, fanciful, no, uh, sweet nothings. I want to hear something of substance. And that's what we're about at Coastway. Two things, expositional preaching and intentional equipping. That's our commitment to the people of God with the Word of God. Expositional preaching and intentional equipping. You will not come to Coastway, I promise you, and get some little sugar pill talk that lasts for 25 minutes with a mashup of pop psychology and random Bible verses that you could read on your coffee cup. No, here's what, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a full-length sermon, amen, chock full of substance, line by line, verse by verse, book by book, the way the good Lord wrote it explained and applied to the conflicts, the cares, and the concerns of everyday human experience. And I want to talk about this. I'm, there's a reason why I do what I do. It's because I believe in preaching. I believe that when the living, active, breathing Word of God goes forth into the people of God, there's something supernatural that happens. There's something that happens that you can't get in your Bible study. There's something that happens that you can't get with that devotional. There's something that happens. You can't even get this with your community group conversation. No, when the Word of God is preached, here, here's, here's the job. Here's my job every, every single Sunday is to comfort the unnecessarily troubled and to confront the unnecessarily comforted. And what does that do? It leads to worship. It's like we've got, we got one job. When God created the world, how did he do it? He preached a sermon. When God convicts, when God compels, when God confronts, when God comforts, what does he do? He sends his people to preach. In the book of Acts, what are God's people doing? They're preaching. And when they're not preaching, they're in prison for preaching. And when they're in prison for preaching, they're preaching to their inmates and prison guards. There's something that happens when the word of God is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit with the authority of what God has declared. Thus says the Lord. So uh, expositional preaching, you're going to get that. Then attentional equipping. We're going to give you settings like a community group where you can discuss the scripture. You can discuss the sermon. Everything that we're learning together, your heart needs that. And we're always asking the question, what can we do to equip you for meaningful Bible intake beyond Sunday. Again, you don't, don't, don't be like that baby eats one, once a week. And so here's what we do. We give you a plan. When we start a series, we give you a Bible reading plan. You're like, I don't, I don't know where to start. Here you go. Start here. These are available uh, outside. You can get one today if you're just like, I don't know what scriptures to go to. Well, here you go. Then we give you a guide. Could you imagine having a tour guide beside you as you are walking through your time with God? That's what time with God is, and it's on the back of the reading plans as we give you literally a built-in tour guide to ask you the questions, to draw out the insights so that you can hear meaningfully from God. It's, it's like having a personal fitness instructor right there beside you as you're walking through the Scriptures. And then what we're going to do is we'll give you a copy of Scripture. You don't have one? We'll, we'll show you how to download one on your app. We'll give, we'll give you one for your lap, and we'll make sure that you are equipped with the Word of God. God, to grow up, get on a healthy diet of God's word. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones. That's a reference to the temple in the Old Testament. The temple was built of stones. And here in the New Testament, as Jesus has 
finally and fully fulfilled the law. We are now a temple built up of living stone where the word and the work of God is fulfilled throughout the world. Living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, that's the church, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So if these verses are overwhelming to you, be encouraged. It's a lot to take in. We could spend an entire sermon talking just about verses 4 through 8. These need to be explained. They need to be applied. Let me see if I can give some, cl- some clarity and connect some dots. Number three, to grow up, here's what Peter is saying at the, at the basement level of principle. Rely on Jesus as your foundation. The key word that unlocks everything Peter says in verses 4 through 8 is in verse 6, and it refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. And this is a quote from the prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 16. Derek read that, walked through that. That's a significant connection because here's what's going on. God is moving the foundation of salvation from a place you go to a person you know, from a building you attend to a body you adore. You see, in the Old Testament, the foundation of salvation was in a stone temple where priests represented people to God and God to people. So what would happen is through a priest, you would have sacrifices that would be offered and atonement could be granted. So there would be these substitutionary sacrifices that would be laid on an altar and they they would be sacrificed in place of, of, of undeserving sinners. And that sacrifice would atone for, would forgive the sins of the other by being a sacrificial substitute. And here's the problem. The place where the priests were, the place where the sacrifices were happening, the place place where the presence of God dwelt, well, that temple, that, that stone temple would end up being destroyed. And it's because Israel, God's people, persisted and resisted God's rule. And so foreign lands came in, foreign armies came in, they invaded, they sacked Jerusalem, they exiled the people to a foreign country, and they destroyed the temple. And so Isaiah, when he prophesies in Isaiah 28, 16, he's talking about a day when a greater temple, an indestructible temple, would be built upon this great cornerstone. And at the time of the prophecy, the people were like, what is that? What is that all about? And Peter tells us it's Jesus Christ. And so what is a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone is the foundational stone upon which a building is built. And this is kind of a silly way to think about it, but have you ever played Jenga before? You know, you take that one tile out, you take the wrong tile, boom, house of cards, it's just going to fall in the floor. Well, you take away the cornerstone, the entire structure would literally collapse. And Jesus comes along, he makes this audacious claim. He says, remember that stone temple torn down? I'm the new indestructible temple. That's why I said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Remember Isaiah's cornerstone? He says to the prideful, uh, opposing Pharisees, he says, yeah, that's me. I am the cornerstone. And so instead of going to a place, you're now going to come to a person. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to, I'm going to be hung on a cross in your place, and that's going to cover your sins once and for all. The true foundation of salvation is here. Take a good, long look. Jesus Christ, 
And this is why Jesus says to Peter, you've heard this verse, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter's name actually means rock. Well, he was talking about, okay, the cornerstone inlaid with the pure surrender, the pure profession of faith of living stones. That's you, that's me. We're inlaid upon this foundation as a spiritual house built up. That's how the church goes forth. Peter goes on in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Loved ones, understand Jesus is the only foundation strong enough to support your life, strong enough to support your hopes, strong enough to get underneath the weight of your marriage and of those, those difficult moments. And we have options. God is a gentleman. He doesn't force us. He doesn't force his will. He doesn't force force our hand. He gives us options. And so if you believe that Jesus is the building block, the cornerstone of your life, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to be honored by God forever, but you're going to be rejected by man for now. And that's the choice. But then if you believe that Jesus is, uh, the, if you do not believe that Jesus is the building block, but you believe that he's a stumbling block, then you can be honored by man for now for a very short period of time, but then justly, rightly rejected by God forever. You don't go to heaven if you don't want God. Heaven would be hell to you, and God is a gentleman. He doesn't force you down a pathway that you would prefer otherwise. And so a stumbling block, what does it do? It hinders your path forward. Jesus is described as a stumbling block. So, uh, so imagine, like, what would a big rock do if it was, like, in your way? Well, it could uh, cause you to trip and fall on your face and it would hurt real bad, or it could force you to change routes and go out of your way. And what Peter is saying is that this is how the city of man views Christ, as an offensive stone that obstructs the direction that I want my self-governed life to move. And so here's the narrative. So Jesus, you're telling me, and you're the, you're the one who's going to be on the other side of these accusations, by the way, because you're the body of Christ. You're the one who represents this living stone or this stumbling stone. So, so Jesus, you're telling me that I can't build my life on a cornerstone of money. You're telling me I can't build my life on a cornerstone of my pet, of my politics, of my, my, my marriage, of sports, of, of some hobby, of social justice, of a sexual pursuit. And Jesus is like, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's all the stuff I was talking about in the story of the wise and the foolish builders. You heard this in Matthew 7. There's a wise man. He builds his house on what? A rock. And the winds and the waves, they come, and his house remains. And that rock is the word, and the word is Christ. Then there's a foolish builder who builds it on sinking sand. The winds, the waves come, sweeps his house away. And Jesus is like, that's it. I'm the rock. I'm the cornerstone. And so the city of man scoffs at this and has an issue with this. And as always, God, Jesus, he gives us options. He's like, you can stand upon me and live, or you can stand against me and you can lose. And so the city of man has foolishly opted to stand against the solid rock and view of Jesus, the stumble, who has become a stumbling block. And so here's what happens, is the allegations, the accusations, they can be so confusing and emotionally 
seemingly valid, but ultimately manipulative. And here's what it's going to sound like. Intolerance. Bigoted. Regressive. Ignorant. Or as Taylor Swift would say, you need to calm down. And what's the result of standing against? Well, it's a sad regression into the childish ways of verse 1. Life lived in verse 1. A life built on sinking sand, a losing battle, a fool's errand. We dare not oppose Christ. But if you think about it, you don't stand against a rock and win. Have you ever fought a rock? How'd that go for you, bro? You probably walked away and be like, I'm not going to do that again. That wasn't really smart. But as Christians, we don't fight against the rock and lose. We stand upon the rock who has won and we cry, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Verse 8, they, the city of man, stumble because they disobey, that is, stand against the word as they were destined to do. And so here's what we need to notice right here is that the direction of so many people's lives is rebellion, resistance, and unresponsiveness to the word of Christ. And if you live here in the Grand Strand, this is your lived experience. Three out of every four men, women, and children who you interact with in the everyday settings don't know God as their father or the church as their family, and it doesn't feel like there's any pulse to get started. And my question is, Christian, does this break your heart? The only way you will witness, the only way you will open your mouth is if you first have a broken heart, even to those who mock, even to those who curse. The Christian vision is this, burdened while blessing. I am burdened for my neighbor who, does, who sees Christ as a stumbling block rather as the solid rock. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Number four, to grow up, remember who God says you are. I hope everyone has seen the movie Lion King. If not, that's your assignment after church. You need to go see the movie Lion King. But there's this prophetic moment in Lion King when Simba has run away from Pride Rock and basically he's befriended this warthog named Pumbaa and Meerkat named Timon and they go around in the jungle singing Hakuna Matata, no worries, and, you know, be happy. And then Mufasa, Simba's father, who was the king, appears, who, the king who was killed, appears to his son and says, son, what are you doing? You're over here gallivanting in the jungle, singing no worries, while your mother and Nala is being oppressed by darkness at Pride Rock, and you're the one who's supposed to do something about it. And the reason you're not is because you forgot who you are. You're not operating out of your identity. You're not operating out of the line and lineage that have been passed on to you through me. And so here's, this is relevant for us because I think the reason why we don't grow up is not because life gets hard. It's not because we get really lonely. It's because we forget who we are. We fail to live into the new birth and identity given to us in Jesus. And so Peter, he calls us up to grow up by reminding, even reassuring us of who we are. 
At Coastway Church, I want to take a few moments to index these identities and remind you who you are. You are a chosen race. God doesn't just love you, He wants you. You might be rejected by man, but you are wanted, you are liked by God. God chose you to be in His forever family. Coastway Church, you are a royal priesthood. This means you are kings and, and you are priests. And what do kings do? Kings rule. We get to rule with God, which means we have a secure victory. What do priests do? Priests represent God. So we rule with God, we have a secure victory as kings, but we represent God, we have an urgent mission as priests, as representatives. Coastway Church, you are a holy nation. And at the heart of God is a holy people. I want you just to imagine living in a nation where there was diversity without division. There was unity without uniformity. Where we don't bow down to the elephant, we don't bow down to the donkey, we bow down willingly, gladly, eagerly to the lion and the lamb who was slain for undeserving sinners. And finally, there's coming a day when you're going to want what you're supposed to want. And Christ is going to be there. This is what it means to be a holy nation. We are a people for his own possession. Jesus thought so much of you that he purchased you with his blood. To be sure, Jesus doesn't die for junk. He does not have a return label on you. No buyer's remorse. He's not sending you back. You ever wonder what God saw in you? He saw the same thing a father sees in his daughter. He saw the same thing a mother sees in her nursing infant. That's part of me. It's like having your heart beat outside of your chest. God looks at you and he thinks, that's how much you mean to me. And I want you to notice all of these, what are they? They can't be fulfilled in isolation. They're all communal identities. You can't be a holy priesthood by yourself. You can't be a holy nation by yourself. You can't be a, a people for God's possession by yourself. You know, you have to be around other people. And this is why we talk about the weekender all the time, the weekender, the on-ramp, the inroad to meaningful family, community, membership at Coastway. Here's what, here's what the weekender is. We just came off of a great weekender experience this past weekend. Our next one's February 25th. I hope you'll be there if you've not been there. But basically what the Weekender does is it connects your life to other people who want to want the right things, who want to love the right things, who want to seek the right things, who want to give and serve and also are opening their lives to giving and also being served. This is why baptism is so important. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that because it's not just into the water and out, it's into a family forever. You're being baptized into a spiritual family by the work of a spiritual father who sent his son to take your place on the cross so that you could have community. And so, so when you know who you are, you know what to do. So take a look at the rest of verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the primary mission of the church is not the skin in, it is the soul out. Food pantries are important. Health care is important. Homeless shelters are important. None of which are as important as warning people of the dangers of a life lived in darkness and welcoming people into the life 
and the love that is found only in the light. And so our primary focus is the soul out. We'll get to the skin, but we start with the soul. That's the priority and the primary mission of the church. Why, though? Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, but now you... Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So to grow up, you must remember where you came from. If you forget where you came from, you're going to get entitled, and you're going to get ungrateful, and you're going to get selfish. Now let's clear the air. You don't have to pray. You don't have to repent. You don't have to witness. You don't have to serve. You don't have to give generously. You get to do those things. There was a day living in darkness when you didn't want to and you didn't get to. But you've been shown mercy. God made you somebody. And now you get to do those things. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, citizens of another city, and exiles, pilgrims passing through, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Number five, to grow up, resist the urge of instant gratification. Now, <laughs> this does not mean that every now and then you have this little pillow fight with sin, this, this soft little scuffle. No, this means there's a hungry lion loose in your front yard. And it's, its hunger is for you. This means you've got a big, mean, cottonmouth snake lurking in your bedroom in the dark. This is not a game, loved ones. There is a dangerous war over your soul. This is why John Owen, the Puritan preacher, said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And so the war is waged by the passions of the flesh, and it is against your soul. So what are the passions of the flesh? The passions of the flesh are your strongest desires in the moment. Paul talks about these in Galatians 5. He lists some of them. But he says something very interesting in Galatians 5, 17. He says, passions of the flesh keep you from doing what you want. Here's the lie that the passions of the, of the flesh tell you. They get you what you want. But Paul says they keep you from what you want. It's like, man, I want to look at something online that I shouldn't look at. No, no, that's not what you want. What you want is 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years from now, you still want to be happily and purely married. Not riddled with a fragmented sexuality and guilt. That's what you want. Your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. You want to text that person back while you're driving? No, that's not what you want to do. You want to get to your destination safe. And, and so what, what Paul is saying is the passions of the flesh, they fool you, they bewitch you, they make you think that what I want now is what I want most. But what you want most is actually not what you want now. And Peter is saying that the passions of the flesh, they are a militant effort of sin, death, Satan, and hell to prevent you from growing up. They're going to destroy your convictions. They're going to destroy your witness. And uh, this makes me think of the church father, Augustine. Before he was St. Augustine, he was Augustine. And as Augustine, he lived a life, you may not know this, uh, a, a, just a radically promiscuous life. And he had many lovers. He had a child out of wedlock. And, but then he surrendered, he became a living stone in the house of God, and he was out in the market one day, and one of his former lovers approaches him, sees him, and comes up to him and says, Augustine, it is I. And Saint Augustine turns around and says, but it is no longer I. 
And there's someone or something tapping you on the shoulder saying, it is I. And what you say to that passion of the flesh is you respond from your identity and you say, it is no longer I. And Peter issues a clear warning. Assimilate to the city of man. It looks like fulfilling the passions of the flesh. You do this, you'll be a prisoner of war. Carried into captivity. Feel good for now, regret it forever. Life lived in verse 1. Childish. Or you can abstain as the city of God, which looks like fighting the passions of the flesh. It's going to feel strange for now. It's going to be hard for now, but you're going to have joy forever. Life lived in the way of Jesus. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's the last way that we grow up. Number six, to grow up, remain honorably among non-Christians. Remain honorably among non-Christians. You see, a growing and mature Christian can do this much. You can be around difficult people. You can be around different people. You can be around even divisive people, and you cannot, and, and you can do it without damaging you can do it in such a way to where they leave that interaction actually saying, man, I totally disagree, fundamentally disagree with what they think, believe. They're a little crazy, but I can't help but think there's something attractive about it. This is what it means to be a city in a city. We don't retreat, we don't resent, but we remain for the purpose of, of bringing renewal. And so for conduct to be honorable, what does it also have to be? For conduct to be honorable, it has to be visible. And I'm, I was thinking about, you know, people probably don't move to Myrtle Beach <laughs> thinking, man, how can, uh, the, well, they don't think like, how can I bless this city? No, instead the, the thought is, how can this city bless me? How can I move here? How can I have lower taxes? How can I be closer to my instant family? How can I uh, be closer to the beach? How can I have just this extravagant college experience? And understand, none of those things are bad. But if that's the cornerstone, if that's the primary reason why we remain, then we can't build our lives on something like that. It's, it's, it's sinking sand. It will not hold up our, our biggest hopes. To be an attractive alternative, we need a distinct motive. And Coastway Church, may we be a people who remain in Myrtle Beach for the purpose of bringing renewal to remain honorably among those who are far from God but close to us. And Peter says this looks like good works for God's glory. Why would you do this? Because here's, here's why you would do this. Because God put something in your heart that if you grew into it and stopped making excuses and stopped being childish and start confessing sin, that if you did that, that Myrtle Beach would look more like the city of God. What could be better? You know, here's, here's how you know you've met an honorable, grown-up person. It's very simple. They are taking full responsibility for their life. And now they have, taken, they have taken responsibility for their life. And they're even moving to the point to where they're taking responsibility for the lives of others, even when it hurts, even when it costs, even when it's a sacrifice. That's actually the definition of growing up, is taking full responsibility for not only yourself, but also those who look to you. This is a definition of growing up, and this is a description of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, understand, what did he do? 
He's the ultimate grown-up. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus Christ took full responsibility for the difficult calling and life that he was commissioned to live by the Father. He owned it. He didn't make excuses. But then he took full responsibility for your suffering, for your sin. He took it onto himself. And now the call for us all, what is it? Grow into such a life. Renounce childish ways. Grow up. Let's pray.